after a year of momentous political and moral conflict over abortion, 2020 is already poised to be the best and the worst year in the abortion wars, as President Trump helps launch the pro-life movement into 2020 by becoming the first president to attend and speak at the March for Life, pledging his full support to protect every child, the enemies of unborn children become nastier and more committed to destroying both babies and human equality. We will examine the state of the abortion debate through Churchill's timeless words. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. There's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. The conflict of these forces is bringing out the best of one movement and the worst of the other. Will you respond to the call of duty? I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, this is our first episode examining the political, moral, and spiritual climate uh, since I returned from D.C. from the March for Life, which has catapulted the pro-life movement into what will be a very momentous year um, on behalf of our unborn children and in these very intense and polarizing abortion wars. Great forces are indeed on the move, and they increasingly are so this year, a year after one of the arguably most polarizing and intense years in the abortion debate, 2019. So, on June 16th, 1941, Winston Churchill gave a radio speech aired to Americans in recognition of an award that he was given. And in that speech, he said this, and these words echo throughout history to our time today because <clears throat> they get right at the heart of conflicts such as ours, the conflict over whether every human being is valuable and has a right to life, in this case, a right to be born, or not, these massive spiritual moral conflicts. And Churchill cut through those types of conflicts with these powerfully numinous type of words that <clears throat> were referring to an equally a time of equal moral chaos in his own life, right? This is during the rise of Hitler and the butchering of Jews. He said that the destiny of mankind is not decided by material computation. When great causes or forces are on the move in the world, stirring all men's souls, drawing them from their firesides, casting aside comfort, wealth, and the pursuit of happiness in response to impulses at once awe-striking and irresistible, we learn that we are spirits, not animals, and that something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. Churchill perfectly describes the moral and spiritual state of his conflict in 1941, but it's also very applicable to our conflict in 2020. This increasing conflict between the party of death and the party of life, that could be political or not, that could just refer to the moral party of life and death, those that fight for the life of the unborn and those who fight for their destruction spells a deeper eternal truth. We're not just animals vying for our rights over others. We're not just pounds 
of flesh. This is not just an animal kingdom where the stronger animals can kill the weaker. There is a movement of causes, of forces that do stir men's souls, that indicate that they are eternal beings. They were made for something more. They were made for something greater, not just mere fleeting moments in which you can satisfy yourself at the whims of your own desires, but there's a deeper eternal narrative in the human soul. That's what Churchill is saying. And the escalating evil of Hitler and the Nazi party at this time led him to say these words, the stirring of men's souls in response to great forces on the move, moved them from their firesides, casting aside the comfort and wealth and pleasures of life to respond to the call of duty, to defend the vulnerable, to engage and fight against evil. Great forces have been on the move and increasingly in 2019, leading us into what will now arguably be one of the best and one of the worst years in the abortion war. So what do I mean by great forces have been on the move? Well, I don't necessarily mean good forces. I just mean great forces. Pro-abortion forces are great forces. The pro-life force is a great force. One is good and one is bad, but they're both great forces and they're both on the move. And we need to ensure that we are not sleeping at the wheel, apathetic to the plight of our unborn neighbors. So while 2019 saw political bigots discriminate against unborn babies by legalizing abortion through the day of birth in the state of New York and various states, defending infanticide on national radio, refusing to pass an Abortion Survivors Protection Act to protect infants already born from vicious abortionists, attempting to force healthcare providers to perform abortions against their religious and moral beliefs, to force California state universities to provide the abortion pill through their university health centers, ignoring CDC standards and requirements for abortion pill prescribers, and nearly every Democratic presidential candidate supporting abortion through the day of birth. In response to all of these great forces on the move, the pro-life movement with the support of the Trump administration fought back. And we fought back powerfully so the wave of the pro-life movement and message has grown increasingly larger. And a big reason for that is because we recognize that we had to meet the pro-abortion forces with an equal force or greater. Many Americans, pro-lifers and people of faith woke up from a moral apathetic snooze in which they pretended to care about abortion, but had never done anything about it. And you're seeing more and more people reject that apathy and engage the forces that discriminate against unborn babies. And so the pro-life forces on the move were evident in 2019. According to Americans United for Life in their fall 2019 state legislative sessions report, they reported that so far in 2019, this was before the end of the year, 58 life-affirming laws were passed and signed into law across 22 states, representing a more than 25% increase from 2018, which was a pro-life year as well in the sense that we had a pro-life administration on our side. So even under a 2018 Trump administration to a 2019 Trump administration, the pro-life movement was successful in passing 25% more pro-life laws and signing them into law across 22 different states. These state laws range from informed consent, parental involvement, doctor admitting privileges, which is a big case right now that the Supreme Court will be 
um, hearing arguments for in March. Heartbeat legislation, abortion survivors protection, and Down syndrome protections. All of these laws are saving lies, lives. According to Dr. Michael New of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, he has researched the effect of state anti-abortion laws and found a direct correlation between the number of pro-life laws and a decrease in the number of abortions. These laws are saving lives. They're not banning abortion. Unfortunately, that is not in our ability to do so yet. Because as soon as a bill tries to ban abortion, the ACLU sues them. It goes up through the courts and the judges say, well, Roe versus Wade is precedent. This law challenges Roe. Goodbye. So we can and should continue to push for the abolition of abortion. Of course, that's what we're all working towards. But in the meantime, we need to pass as many laws as possible to save law, laws as possible to save as many lives as possible. These are the forces of the pro-life movement in 2019. And now 2020 is poised to be the best and the worst year, meaning I think we're going to see the best of the character of pro-lifers in the movement and the worst of the character of the pro-abortion movement. Because this is an election year. <laughs> and if President Trump is reelected at the end of the year, the abortion crazies are going to absolutely lose their mind. Because not only does that spell disaster for them from a political threat, but it also means that it's very likely that Trump will replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with another justice. It's very unlikely that she could last for another four and a half years. And you saw the absolute mania of the pro-abortion left when President Trump was attempting to and was eventually successful in appointing Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, his second appointee. And they knew that that threat was going to be a very dangerous threat to pro-abortion ideology and the pro-abortion movement. So this escalating spiritual conflict, if you will, of the force of these forces, the forces of death and the forces of life does spell duty to the Christian, to the pro-lifer, to the person of faith. And President Trump brilliantly explained the duty of the pro-life movement to protect life at the March for Life, a duty that the pro-life movement has long fulfilled and a duty that more and more people are adopting and owning in their own life. President Trump being the first president in American history to attend the March for Life and address the March for Life in person. He gave about a 13-minute speech, and he hit all of the wonderful and important points. I just want to play you a couple short clips from his speech as he addresses the duty of people of faith and pro-life individuals to protect life. Young people are the heart of the March for Life, and it's your generation that is making America the pro-family, pro-life nation. The life movement is led by strong women, amazing faith leaders, and brave students who carry on the legacy of pioneers before us, who fought to raise the conscience of our nation and uphold the rights of our citizens. You embrace mothers with care and compassion. You are powered by prayer and motivated by pure, unselfish love. You're grateful and we are so grateful. These are incredible people. President Trump gets this exactly right. <clears throat> the pro-life movement is comprised of a majority of faith leaders, of people of faith, of Protestants and Catholics, of those who believe in a singular God 
who has created all things, loves the creation he has made, and has laws and commandments for his people, for their good, for their flourishing. And the people of faith in the pro-life movement understand that they do have a duty to protect life. These aren't just meaningless words the president is saying to try to speak to the ego of pro-life leaders. He's recognizing a deeper spiritual truth, which is that people of faith recognize that while they're fallen and selfish, just like everyone else, <clears throat> that they're supposed to die to themselves. They're supposed to serve others. They're supposed to love their neighbor. And sometimes loving your neighbor is uncomfortable. Sometimes it requires sacrifices because the Bible is very clear that every human being is our neighbor. And the greatest example of loving your neighbor in scripture is the parable of the Good Samaritan. A bleeding victim's on the road. Two religious people walk by and do nothing. A Good Samaritan exemplifies faith in action, in works, by caring for a bleeding victim in physical need of help. Of course, the analogy to our time today is quite clear, isn't it? The unborn child is our bleeding victim. And for too long, we have walked by on the other side of the road and done nothing. But we have a duty to love our neighbor. And in so doing, Christ says you actually love him when you love the least of these. This is <clears throat> the call to obedience. This is the duty of people of faith. And so President Trump continues by explaining why people of faith who make up the majority of the pro-life movement, care so deeply about every child born and unborn. All of us here today understand an eternal truth. Every child is a precious and sacred gift from God. Together, we must protect, cherish, and defend the dignity and the sanctity of every human life. When we see the image of a baby in the womb, we glimpse the majesty of God's creation. When we hold a newborn in our arms, we know the endless love that each child brings to a family. When we watch a child grow, we see the splendor that radiates from each human soul. It's wonderful. It's perfect. Powerful. Speaking exactly to the reason as to why so many hundreds of thousands of people were there, were gathered, because they don't just believe we're pounds of flesh. They don't believe we're cosmic blobs or accidents. They believe that an all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful, all-loving God intentionally created every human being with purpose, and that those individuals bear the very image and likeness of that same God. We're different from creatures. We're not like animals. We have a nature that is similar to God's. Not a perfect nature, but a nature that is similar. Every human being is created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. Unlike every other form of creation, that's why God gives human beings dominion over everything else that he has made and made them as the peak of his entire creation. And so the self-evident beauty and observation is that, yes, when you see the image of a baby in the womb, you glimpse the majesty of God's creation. The, the wonder of life in the womb and the miracle of how that happens is not accidental. It's, it's created by someone else. Its purpose is designed by someone else. And as image bearers of God, we have a duty to protect other image bearers of God who are unable to protect themselves. These are the forces on the move. This is not just a movement of, 
uh, people who feel some type of moral uh, obligation to care for others, but they can't really explain why. I mean, while we're grateful, obviously, for the secular humanists and the atheists who are pro-life and join us to march for life. But the reality is, is that the Christian worldview, the people of faith have the best explanation and grounding for why they care. Because without it, a moral law giver, without a creator who has created individuals' moral compass to call some things good and some things bad, you can't really explain why to be good in the first place. And so it's in obedience to this all-loving God that people respond to this duty. They respond to the call of the great forces on the move who are fighting for life. And we're going to contrast the duty of each force on the move because the conflict of these two forces is bringing out the best of one movement and the worst of the other. And the divide has never been clearer in our country between the forces of death and the forces of life. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, right, of these forces at war with one another, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. That enables us to increase our production value, bring you more content, move into more episodes, bring on guests, um, and be able to continue providing you with this one-stop shop, if you will, of a community of unaborted human beings who are committed committed to life and committed to investing in the next generation to join the forces of life until every child is protected from death and welcomed into this world through the birth canal with love and not forceps. So if you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and support our show. We'll be back with a whole lot more in just one second. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So as I said, we need to contrast the duty of each force on the move, those on the move for life and those on the move for death. Because as you begin to recognize the increasing polarization and great chasm between those on the move for life and those on the move for death, my hope is that you'll be far more likely to engage in the forces for life, right? We've seen, we have seen so many more people engaged in the church, in the culture, in the politics for life. You've seen the increased amount of pro-life legislation. Why is there this, this building pro-life wave right now that has been seemingly larger and building faster than at any other time in the pro-life movement, at least in my life? Because the radicalization of the pro-abortion forces and their strategic arm in the Democratic Party became so intense that apathy was unacceptable, that silence was itself evil. And so more and more people rose to the call for duty to join the forces of life. So as this chasm and divide continues to grow larger between each of the forces, more and more Americans will join either side of the forces, right? Um, And hopefully the Americans in our country who are not crazy pro-aborts, but have a rational nature with a semi-functioning moral compass, will choose to join the forces of life because of the increased radicalization of the pro-abortion left, which is just too ghoulish. It's too far gone to uh, sit comfortably in the minds 
of most Americans. And so contrastively to President, President Trump's March for Life speech, there was another march of human beings in D.C. one week before the March for Life. And this is the annual Women's March, the first one of which was in 2017, what, like a month after President Trump was elected because of the great fear and anger that this president had been elected. And so one of uh, my friends, Kate Maloney over at Students for Life of America, interviewed marchers at the Women's March in D.C., which their largest projection of attendance was 10,000 individuals, the the low end being 3,000 individuals, compared to 2017, which brought out hundreds of thousands, uh, over 500,000 I believe, at the time. So this march has become a total joke. It's totally dwindling. Nobody's getting out to march for the killing of babies, which, let's be honest, that's what the Women's March has primarily become about. So I want to play you this short little clip where Kate Maloney interviews people at the Women's March asking them if they support abortion through the day of birth, which, according to Gallup polls, is 13% of Americans. And let's see what some of the individuals marching for the killing of babies had to say to these questions. Hey, pro-life generation. Kate Maloney here from Students for Life of America and we are in Washington DC at the Women's March and today we're going to be interviewing people to see if you know this Women's March is really pro-women, pro-all women, especially pro-life women and especially, especially pre-born women. So let's find out. What is the most important right for women to advocate for today? I think access to abortion because I think that has so many implications for race and class. What do you think is the most important right for women today to be advocating for? Reproductive health. I definitely say probably abortion rights. And that's a big topic right now in our society. Yeah. Yeah, just a woman's right to choose, especially with Planned Parenthood being here. I think it's really great to see everyone coming out to support that. Um, I would say today, still reproductive justice, since our rights are being rolled back on currently during this administration. I would add to that um, reproductive rights, um, because everything kind of stems from it. If I can't control my own body, I can't, I can't have a career. I can't. Uh, finance, uh, economic rights, so everything kind of stems from our reproductive rights. Roe versus Wade makes abortion legal through all nine months of pregnancy for whatever reason. Um, is that something that you all agree with? Like through all nine months, would you support restrictions? We're psychology students, so we've like talked a lot about of that and like the whole legal issues. And so I definitely, I would like to become more aware about like what type of limitations could we potentially put on that, but I think a woman ultimately should have the right to choose up to nine months. I agree with that too. I'm in support of um, the option for all nine months. For all nine months and for any reason at all? Yeah. So I'm in support of the option that a woman has the choice for her body. I think bodily autonomy is on par with your right to life. Like I think that when your life begins, that's when your bodily autonomy is begins as well. Would you agree with that, disagree? You're asking a very complex question. <laughs> I take care of sick moms, sick babies, and sick pregnancy. Thank you, thank you. That's We need more of that. So um, you're asking me a very challenging question. Roe v. Wade allows abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. Is that something that you agree with or do you think that we should have restrictions in place? I 100% think there should be no restrictions on a woman's right to decide what's best for her and her family. Sick, 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 sick. Last mom with her toddler sleeping on her shoulder practically as she tells Kate Maloney from Students for Life of America that she should have had the right to rip little Timmy's arms off in the womb right before he was born. Lovely. Hope that kid turns out all right. Jeez Louise. 
here's your marchers. Here's your women's march. Um, by the way, here's what a, a second trimester abortion looks like um, at the towards the end of the second trimester. Here's some babies that were butchered and bloodied by sick abortionists who treated their mothers like prospects for a sale. Now, imagine what a third trimester abortion looks like. Those are second trimester murdered children. And all of these women claiming to march for the rights of women, the bodily autonomy of women, equal rights for women, support butchering these children. Not just these ones, but ones three months older, right before their mothers are supposed to give birth to them. <laughs> I mean, that blows up the euphemistic, disgusting gymnastics required to make it sound like killing unborn women through all nine months of pregnancy is somehow empowering to women or uh, guarantees women's equality. As I mentioned earlier, according to a 2019 Gallup poll, only 13% of Americans support abortions through all nine months of pregnancy in the third trimester. That's a pretty small percentage of American citizens who believe that. And yet, if these women are representative of the rest of the men and women in the Women's March, then nearly all of them support that. Now, even now, okay, to be fair, even if not every one of the of the max ten thousand people who were at the Women's March in D.C. a week before the March for Life support, even if they don't all support third trimester abortions, they support a political candidate who does. Why are they marching? They're marching because they hate Trump. They're marching because they're wearing uterus hats and uh, beanies on their head. Because, of course, they need to have the right to remove the contents in those uteruses whenever they want to. None of these individuals likely will be voting for President Trump. Remember, the Women's March started because of fear and hatred of President Trump. That's why it started in the first annual one in January of 2017. And then, of course, these happen all across the country every January week before the March for Life. So the majority, the vast majority, the supermajority of everyone in these women's marches want a Democrat for president. Okay, well, who are the Democrats running for president? All of them, except Tulsi Gabbard, support abortion through the day of birth. And Tulsi arbitrarily draws a line at the end of the second trimester because magical personhood conferring fairy dust is sprinkled on unborn children a second after they leave the second trimester and enter the third trimester, which was a subjective uh, age bracket uh, invented out of nowhere by the courts in order to make sense of abortion laws in the first place. So that there's your moral consistency of the only Democratic presidential candidate, Tulsi Gabbard, who doesn't support abortion through the day of birth. So if they don't support Tulsi Gabbard, then the person that they support supports abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. So even if they don't personally do that, they're throwing their support at someone that does, and that's just as morally disgusting. The irony of this women's march is that pro-life women aren't welcome at all. You may not remember, but in 2017, when the women's march kicked off, they, they removed, disinvited, kicked off a pro-life feminist group from the list of sponsors, said you're disinvited. You can have no part in this women's march. If you're a pro-life woman, screw you, according to the women's march leaders. And then the, the additional irony of the women's march is that the slaughter of unborn women is celebrated as reproductive justice. So if so, basically, they're bigoted towards pro-life women for not conforming to their ideology, and they're bigoted against unborn women for differing from them physically and according to their age. Now, contrast the women's march who march for the right to beat and bloody unborn women and discriminate against pro-life women with the march for life. And one of the best pieces I've seen that contrasts these two marches that gives you a heart into the 
moral compass of those marching for life into the attitudes, into the heart, into the care, into the motivation of those marching for life, as opposed to the motivation of those in the women's march is Michael Knowles from the Daily Wire interviewing marchers and asking them why they march. Why are they here? Why do you care? So I want to play you a brief piece of this and just, just look at this, just listen and observe the difference in care, the difference in motivation between these marches. We're here at the 47th annual March for Life. There are tens and tens of thousands of people here, but the crowds are overwhelmingly young and they're young because a quarter of their generation has been killed through abortion. They call themselves the pro-life generation. We're gonna hear their stories. My grandma also had an abortion and it was for my on my mom, but it didn't work. So like my mom was born, I was born. If abortion would have worked, then I wouldn't be here and I couldn't fight for the unborn too. Indianapolis is very far away, so you must care a lot about this cause. Oh really, yeah. We really do. Uh, I am here to support the, be a voice for the voiceless and to uh, speak for the unborn. On the uh, mainstream media, they always tell us that the only people who are pro-life are angry old men. You do not look like angry old men. Was there some personal uh, aspect that, that made you pro-life? With my uh, grandma, my grandma had an abortion and uh, she kind of like carried it throughout her like, life and she just really struggled with it. And like just seeing that really like kind of brought me to like the more pro-life side and kind of like with her talking to me about that and my mom talking to me about that and really just helped me to come to that conclusion. I grew up a foster child and um, I see many people who use um, people's bad experiences in foster care as uh, a supportive reason for why abortion should be legalized and even promote abortion for those reasons. Because my mother chose life, um, I'm able to be used as a vessel to help other people in this world. My best friend is actually adopted and I can't imagine growing up really without her. And she has been trying to figure out who her birth parents are, but we're very thankful that they were able to give her up for adoption so that I had the blessing of having her in my life. And you don't think that the suffering that you had to endure it was just not worth it at all and it'd be better if you never even had a life. No, um, I'm, I'm thankful for the life that I have and, uh, you know, if just having that chance means so much to me and it, today's a great day for me to remember that. And you're out here marching and uh, sending a message to the people who say that people like you shouldn't even be around. No, I actually think that's a very ignorant argument, whether they mean to be offensive or not, to say it's it's probably better that you are dead than uh, you have a hard life. Um, that's that's not even their decision to to be made. And it's just a very ignorant argument. Wow. Look at the difference. Look at the difference between the forces of life who are not marching for themselves and the forces of darkness who are only marching for themselves. They might pretend to be marching for others, for, for all women, right? To all women to have the choice. The choice to do what? The choice to kill your child on the altar of sexual libertinism. So either way, it's all about you. The great difference between the Women's March and the March for Life is selfishness versus selflessness. The difference between individual sexual liberty, even at the cost of feticide, Versus 500,000 people not even marching for themselves or their own rights. That's the difference here. 
And if you listen to this show, I encourage you to go watch it and look at the faces and look at the eyes of those that were interviewed by Michael Knowles. Look at the joy. Look at the purpose. They're not marching for themselves. They're there for someone else. They're there for an entire group of human beings who cannot march for themselves. That's that's the, the tragic nature of the forces of darkness is that the only reason that brings 10,000 people out to the women's march is to protect their right to have sex without responsibility, to not have to deal with the results of sex, to not have to deal with the emotional bonds and the depth of a sexual union, which is so strong that sometimes nine months later, it requires a name. And yet these people want to continue living according to the lie and pitching the lie that consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy. And so if I consent to sex, but not to pregnancy, and then I get pregnant, well, what the heck, man? I didn't consent to that. So I'm just going to remove, eliminate, dismember, murder the results of a reproductive act, which is naturally and biologically oriented towards reproduction. What selfishness, what evil. That's the difference between the Women's March and the March for Life. So contrast 10,000 people, the majority of which are marching in large part because they want to kill more babies, with somewhere between 250,000 and 500,000 people marching for children who can't march for themselves. Furthermore, the annual Students for Life of America conference this year called the National Pro-Life Summit because it brought together multiple pro-life organizations that put it on, drew 3,300 people, the majority of which were high school and college students. 3,300 people, the largest pro-life conference in American history. You see, the forces of life are on the move. There are great forces on the move, and they demand duty from those who have been silent. So in response to this type of march, in response to the escalating political threats of the pro-life movement and our pro-life administration, Planned Parenthood forces respond in equal measure. Planned Parenthood is like a wounded animal running around with its tail behind its legs, ready to snap at the first person who threatens it. And that has been the nature of Planned Parenthood and the abortion juggernaut for the last couple years. And now in this election year, they are increasingly scared and they are going to get more violent because of it. Not necessarily physically violent, though um, there's a chance of that, but um, philosophically violent, ideologically violent. They're afraid that their ability to line their pockets with the blood money of dismembered children will be removed from them. So what do I mean by them responding in kind? Well, according to a CNN article very recently, Planned Parenthood is publicly committed to spend $45 million to elect a pro-abortion Democrat into the White House at the end of the year, which, by the way, is ludicrous that they're able to get away with that and maintain a 501c3 nonprofit status. This is straight up money laundering. Your tax dollars given to them at the tune of half a billion a year, whether you want to approve of that or not, consent to that or not, funneled through Planned Parenthood to pro-abortion Democrats who hate you, who laugh at you, who think you're ignorant, who think you're stupid, who think that you're a religious fundamentalist trying to impose your rosaries on every woman's ovaries. 
your money is being used to help try to elect a feticide apologist into the White House in 2020. Additionally, Planned Parenthood is upping their political messages and their online media and content to indoctrinate young people that the body in your body is not your body and it's very, very important to kill more babies because that enables you to have sexual pleasures without any of the responsibilities that come with it. So Planned Parenthood releases one of their most twisted, euphemistic pieces of propagandist bigotry entitled We Decide. We Decide. It's up to us to kill our own babies. And how dare the government try to prevent parents from killing their own offspring. So let's go ahead and pray this brief video clip as a contrast to the forces of life, to the forces of darkness who are calling, making a call of duty to young people while simultaneously indoctrinating them with a pro-abortion ideology. Can I be blatantly honest? My life is at stake in this next election. It is a matter of life and death to have access to quality health care. Birth control. To safe and legal abortion. And accurate sexual education. And that's not happening right now. Our reproductive rights have come into question yet again. I was a young nurse when Roe v. Wade was passed. Now we worry about protecting it every day. There is no reason politicians should be telling me when or if I can build a family. We need to go forward, not backward. We didn't always have the right to vote. Many of my family members grew up in segregation. My dad grew up in a country where he didn't have a voice, but I do. Voting is a way to do something when you wish you could just do something. That's the whole point of our system. It's the basis of our democracy. Politicians think they decide what we do with our own bodies, but guess what? We decide. To go out there and make the change that we want to see. We decide who our leaders are. Nosotros elegimos nuestro futuro. We decide our future. We decide. We decide. We decide. We decide. We decide to kill our own children. How dare you? prevent individuals from doing that. I've been saying this for a while. The, the mastery of language and the ability to manipulate language to fit your ideology has become increasingly common and increasingly perfected as of late in the pro-abortion left. I mean, honestly, the ability of <clears throat> pro-abortion ideologues to do this with the English language makes, and I know everyone hates me for these comparisons, makes Hitler look like an amateur for his ability to manipulate the English language. I mean, unbelievable. Now, I'm not saying that all of these individuals are morally on par with Hitler in terms of the perpetration of genocide, but they are protecting it. And many of them, of course, have killed their own children as well. But their ability to ex explain and describe one of the most evil things that a human being could wrap their mind around, the dismemberment of a baby, of an actual little baby human and describe it as choice and reproductive rights and health care and equal rights and to put so much passion behind it is just sick, evil, but also heartbreaking because nobody is this good of an actor. Nobody. So what does that tell us? It tells us they actually believe what they're saying. That's the most heartbreaking part about this whole thing, isn't it? Is that, yes, they are evil individuals who are serving an evil master and an evil ideology, but they don't think they are. That's what's so heartbreaking about this whole thing. Their ability to use language in this way <clears throat> to describe feticide as healthcare 
can only be done if they actually believe it. So let's break this down. Let's break down this euphemistic doublespeak that is the polar opposite in contrast to this movement and force of life and love that says, I'm not marching for myself. I'm marching because half a, a quarter of my generation is gone. My family was wounded by abortion. And in some cases, they say I'm alive because my grandmother abortion failed on my mother. And that's why I'm here marching. Look at the contrast of this kind of disgusting language that celebrates death. So these women say, our reproductive rights have come into question yet again. Listen, nobody is interested in when you choose to reproduce or if you choose to use non-abortifacient contraception to prevent reproduction. This is how it's always pitched. The dismemberment of a human baby is pitched as reproductive rights, which is your right to reproduce and choose when you want to reproduce. Nobody's interested in getting in bed and determining if and when you can have sex. Nobody's interested in that. But if you create a new human, then it's not about reproductive rights. It's about eliminating what was already reproduced. They say, politicians cannot tell me when or if I can build a family. Correct. Correct. And nobody's telling you when and if you can build a family. But they're telling you that you can't rip the limbs off of your own unborn offspring. That And preventing you from killing a current member of your own family. They say, well, we didn't always have the right to vote. Unbelievable. This young black woman, if you're watching the show, equates the bigotry of racism in denying African Americans the right to vote to her duty today to defend the greatest destroyer of African Americans, abortion. Think about that for a second. A young black woman equates the bigotry of racism instituted by racist Democrats, by the way, who prevented African-Americans from voting or made it very difficult to do so, and compares that to her duty now in light of that, in light of her gained right to vote, to her duty to defend the greatest destroyer of her African-American brothers and sisters, black babies killed through abortion, who were killed at a disproportionate amount as opposed to other racial classes, and abortion having been started in large part to eliminate the black population. Planned Parenthood started prior to their performance of abortions through birth control and forced sterilization to eliminate the black population. This was Margaret Sanger's vision. <clears throat> and yet this poor lost woman is completely unaware of that fact because the people indoctrinating her are going to explicitly keep such information from her in order to keep her as an ideological slave. So, all right, so we're going to continue with, with more of this, more of the dutiful calling of pro-abortion ideologues to the forces of darkness as they respond in kind to the forces of life that are increasing in their commitment to protect life. But first, I've teamed up with my new friend, Sarah Vienna, for a pro-life church tour. Sarah is an international speaker and singer and nonprofit leader who works in Romania and the states defending the cause of the needy from unborn to elderly. Our I'm Alive Church Tour is named after Sarah's song, I'm Alive, a message from an unborn child to their mother. I'm Alive Tour captures both the beauty and truth of the pro-life position. And speaking to both the heart and the head, this tour will win the hearts of your church for life 
life while also equipping them to defend life. Based on biblical truths, I'm Alive can help your church create a culture of life that fights to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers. So happening in the summer of 2020, this tour will fill up fast, focused on Southern California. So go to I'm Alive. Uh, or email us at imalivetour at gmail.com for questions and bookings. That's imalivetour at gmail.com to bring this tour to your church. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So more of this radicalization and dutiful commitment to the abortion forces of darkness. And notice how this has all happened in the first month of the year, right? The, the, the contrasts between the people of life and the people of dark, the people of death. All of this has happened in the first month of the year. Planned Parenthood committing all this money, Planned Parenthood releasing this propaganda, this new video by Feminist News, which is a Facebook page that celebrates the killing of babies, releases this abortion is freedom video. That's what they call it. Abortion is freedom. You need to be free to kill your own offspring. And this is a collection of celebrities all saying that abortion is reproductive freedom and equality, right? Uh, and so we really need to take seriously the opinions of celebrities um, who really know nothing about our politics and most of them who have morally uh, train wrecked uh, their own lives through a, a variety of decisions, many of which is abortion. Many celebrities have gotten an abortion or paid for it because baby got in the way of their Hollywood career. So I want to play this last clip as a contrast to the forces of life in the pro-life movement so you get a sense of the increased commitment and the call for duty by the abortion ideologues to young people and those who describe themselves as feminists to serve this evil ideology in ensuring that a pro-abortion administration takes over for Trump and all of the progress and pro-life laws passed to protect unborn children is repealed. That's what this is really all about. It's about getting more people in their camp, in their forces, to fight against us nasty pro-lifers who say babies are babies, babies are humans, and innocent humans shouldn't be killed. So here you go. Who becomes pregnant. The issue here is freedom. Reproductive freedom. It's about the freedom to make your own decisions about your own body. Now, given the overwhelming public support for reproductive freedom, there's no justification for any group of politicians in any state to try to diminish the freedom of literally half the people in our country by passing dangerous, restrictive, anti-abortion laws that in some cases completely ban our right to choose. Because if the government can decide what I can do or can't do with my own body, this becomes a human rights issue. If I don't get to make 100% of the decisions about my own body, then how am I an equal person under the law? So members of the press, candidates for Senate and President of the United States, let's talk about abortion and what it's really about. Human rights, justice, accessibility, and freedom over the choices we make for our families and our lives. And that's a freedom that no one, no one has the right to take away from me. Yikes. So you're not an equal person under the law unless you can kill the child that you consensually created. Because, of course, as I always say, according to the Guumacher Institute, 1% or less of abortions are performed on women having identified as being raped. So you're not an equal person under the law. You're discriminated against by the government 
unless you have the legal right to kill the baby that you consensually created? Well, it's a hell of a sell. Do you sense their fear and anger though? Especially if you're watching this. I mean, <laughs> that's some sass, right? Do you sense their fear and anger? Pro-aborts are doubling down in their dutiful service to themselves. And that is the tragedy of this whole thing, isn't it? That's the disgusting nature of this whole thing. Great forces are on the move. But one force is serving entirely itself. It's all about themselves. They're going to pretend like it's about all women, that they care about equal treatment under the law. But it's all about themselves. How do we know that? That's the threat that they're afraid of is that they will be forced to recognize and live according to the reality that consent to sex is consent to pregnancy. For years, the sexual revolution has fed the culture this ideological pill that suggests that you make your own reproductive decisions. And the consent to sex has nothing to do with the consent to pregnancy. So go orgasm as much as you want. Go pleasure yourself as much as you want, as long as it's consensual. Um, and never have to man up, woman up, grow up, and take responsibility for your actions. And if the worst thing happens from your sexual liberty, a new human, then just get rid of them. Just kill them. And we in the pro-abortion movement will line our pockets with the blood money from your murdered child. That's why this is all about them. This is why the pro-abortion movement is often so much louder, angrier, and unhinged than the pro-life movement. Because everyone's good at being selfish. <laughs> so everyone's going to get angrier and nastier when their perceived rights are being threatened. Because it's all about them. People are really good at serving themselves. So it shouldn't surprise us that one side of the aisle tends to be a lot louder, nastier, and angrier. When great forces are on the move that challenge your right to kill all babies that might result from your sexual liberty, the pro-abortion forces get angrier and louder because their ability to live horribly selfish lives is being threatened. Their ability to always eliminate the products of their sexual escapades is being threatened. So let's break down the language in this video. They say that there's no justification for politicians to diminish the freedom of half the people in the country. And they later cite some of the statistics of the amount of American citizens that support Roe versus Wade. Now, okay, now let's just toss that type of argumentation out right away, okay? A majority of Americans used to be on board with slavery. That was not a good argument for its legality um, or its morality. So they're saying, oh, well, you know, there's large support for Roe and half or over half of the country supports Roe. So why are you stripping the rights of over half the country? Well, it doesn't matter if over half the country believes it's okay to kill babies. That has nothing to do with the moral question. But only by assuming the unborn is not a human can you make this statement, right? Because if the unborn is a human being like us, then the government actually has a constitutional mandate 
to diminish the freedom of parents to kill their own children. No one would ever say that there's no justification for politicians to diminish the freedom of parents to kill their toddlers. <laughs> that doesn't sit well with anyone. But if that toddler is the same toddler or infant, but a little bit younger and located in a womb, then it's wrong to diminish the freedom of families to kill those children. Only by dehumanizing the unborn and treating them as a parasite with no rights can you even get away with the statement that there's no justification for politicians to ban your right to kill your unborn child in the womb, if that makes sense. Secondly, this woman says, oh, you know, we're passing dangerous anti-abortion laws, which is an unbelievable forward sentence. You see, it's dangerous to pass laws that prevent the violence and murder of innocent human babies. It's, it's dangerous to pass anti-dangerous laws. To, to ban dangerous laws that enable you to kill someone else. <laughs> now, the reference here, of course, is to women who they believe will die from complications if they can't get an abortion. You know, oh, women are going to die from abortions in life-threatening circumstances because you pass pro-life laws. Or often they're referring to low-income women whose life and well-being and income is being threatened by pro-life laws. Now, firstly, there is a super minority of abortion cases in which that it is necessary to abort the baby to save the life of the mother. In fact, in 1981, former Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. C. Everett Koop said that, quote, the fact of the matter is that abortion as a necessity, necessity to save the life of the mother is so rare as to be non-existent. And this was in 1981. Our medical technology and ability to save both mother and child is much better now than it was in 1981. But again, the ability or approach to save the mother's life does not necessitate an abortion because abortion is actually never medically necessary. <clears throat> to save the life of the mother in a pregnancy that will take her life if it continues, you can induce early labor through Pitocin or you can perform a cesarean section. Either way, you remove baby. Now mom's not pregnant, so pregnancy threat is no longer a risk to her life. Now, if the baby's not developed enough, baby will die and you give baby and mom as much time together as possible. But that's a far more compassionate choice than intentionally dismembering the baby under the guise of it being necessary to save the life of the mother. If baby is developed enough to survive outside the womb, then you can deliver them early and save mom and baby uh, and not do nothing and allow mom to die. And then, of course, in ectopic pregnancies, we know we can't save both lives, but there's a different surgical procedural name to remove the baby from the fallopian tube to save mother's life because abortion is the intentional killing of the child. We're intentionally saving the life of the mother in an ectopic pregnancy. So uh, that, those are all of the assumptions in those four words, this dangerous anti-abortion laws. It's not dangerous to say you can't kill babies and women will be well taken care of. They won't start dying from dangerous pregnancies. They say that it's a human rights issue to prevent families from killing their own offspring. Okay, have fun with selling that. And then it's a matter of human rights, justice, and freedom to choose to murder unborn children. So basically, we can enjoy sex without any of the responsibilities that lead from sex. Humans, we need sexual libertinism. That's what they're saying. That our right to sleep with as many people as we want, whenever we want, without any of the responsibilities therein, is a matter of rights, justice, and freedom. There you go. There is your euphemistic translation of this ridiculous piece of propaganda from feminist news as they're pushing this out to young people leading up to the 2020 election to ensure that more people are on their forces of darkness fighting for the right to kill babies. So you have this piece from Planned Parenthood. We decide to kill babies. We need to kill more babies so we can enjoy sexual liberty. And then feminist news, fake feminist news, 
ripping off the limbs of unborn women denied feminist rights to live because all of these actresses primarily also want sexual liberty without any of the responsibilities therein. Here's your contrast. The Women's March, Kill Babies for the Day of Birth, Planned Parenthood, feminist organizations, vote for a Democrat who wants to kill more babies because we don't want to have to grow up and take care of the children that often are produced in our sexual escapades. Now, in contrast to all of that, a group called Faces of Choice debuts a clip at the March for Life on uh, the January 25th, I believe, or 24th. And they highlight the stories of actual abortion survivors whose pitch and story is, I am the face of that choice. We are the faces of the choice that Planned Parenthood and Feminist News and the Women's March just said was a sacrosanct choice that had to be protected by American law. These are their stories. Lyric Jalay, the founder of Faces of Choice, produced a short video of the testimonies of abortion survivors, um, along with Melissa Odin, a friend of mine and the executive director of, of the Abortion Survivors Network, connecting abortion survivors with one another to heal and to encourage one another to speak out. Now, Faces of Choice has submitted this video to the Super Bowl as an ad. Sadly, it was ignored and eventually rejected by Fox months before they even closed off the opportunity for ad segments. They gave Faces of Choice the runaround and then finally said, we're not going to air this because it's not politically and financially expedient to their network. But we want to play this for you, which debuted initially before hundreds of thousands of people at the March for Life rally right before the actual march. And these are the faces of failed reproductive health care. Can you look me in the eye? Can you look me in the eye and tell me that I shouldn't exist? That I should be dead? That I deserve to die that day. Can you look me in the eye and tell me that my very survival was a mistake? A terrible toll on society? Can you look me in the eye and tell me that in my most vulnerable state, I was nothing more than a parasite? A collection of body parts. Subhuman? Worthless. In 1952, I survived multiple abortion attempts. DNC abortion. An instrument abortion. DNC abortion. A risk of abortion. abortion. A vacuum aspiration e abortion. E An induced abortion. abortion. A saline infusion abortion that was meant to poison and scald me to death. I am the face of choice. I am that choice. These are actual human beings who survived abortion procedures when they were still in their mother's wombs. These are the eyes, voices, and faces of choice. 
Choice is not merely a word. Choice is a person. Learn their stories. Well, well, there you go. If you don't watch this show, I encourage you to do so <clears throat> to actually see the faces of choice. This ruins any type of evil euphemistic attempt to describe the killing of a baby as anything less or other than the killing of a baby. In this video, you will have seen two different children who also appeared briefly, who survived abortions. And you know what's so dark and sick and disgusting about this whole thing? Is that if pro-abortion advocates are going to be consistent, they need to look into those faces and say, you are a failure. Because if reproductive health care and justice are such wonderful rights that not only need to be maintained, but oftentimes should be encouraged to be exercised, then it would follow that a failure to procure said health care would be tragic and sad. If it is reproductive justice, if it is a matter of justice to have the right to kill your child in the womb, then the failure to appropriately obtain that right must, by the same definition, be wrong, sad, a failure, unfortunate. Well, what's the unfortunate failure of the women who fail to adequately procure this said health care? Human beings, children, babies, the faces of choice that you just saw. And if you've ever seen interviews with abortion survivors on national television or on panels with pro-abortion advocates, you'll quickly realize how uncomfortable the pro-abortion people get looking them in the face and defending their pro-choice position. That's damn right you should be uncomfortable because your ideology suggests that they should not be here because it's unfortunate that their mother failed to adequately procure their reproductive health care choices. While the failure to successfully exercise your right to choose sometimes leads to a born-alive baby, oftentimes partially wounded from their mother's attempt at exercising health care, at their mother's attempt to kill them. At least one face human being in this video is physically wounded and, par and uh, <clears throat> handicapped because of the abortion attempt on his life. Abortion survivors are the greatest nightmare of the pro-choice movement because who can look them in the face and say that they have or had no value and should have been killed? If they have value now, which almost every pro-choice person is gonna admit, how can you look them in the face, sit down with them over dinner and say, I hate that you're here. You're a failed reproductive healthcare choice. So if you admit that it, they have value now and it's a good thing they weren't murdered, then it follows that they had value in the womb too. Why? Because it's the same human being. If life begins at conception, then every human being is on a continuum of human development, which began at the moment of conception. So if abortion survivors had value in the womb, then all unborn children have value in the womb. That's why abortion survivors are the nightmare of the pro-choice movement, because they are an emotional subterfuge argument that destroys their entire ideology. Because if they give ground and say that these abortion survivors are valuable and that you're glad that they're here, because otherwise you have to stare, stare at them and say, I wish you weren't here. No one's going to say that. But if you acknowledge ideologically that they have value now and it's a good thing that they weren't killed and you're grateful that they're here, 
then you've given philosophical ground by admitting that they had value in the womb too because it's the same person. And if they had value in the womb, then every child has value in the womb because we don't have value because we're an abortion survivor. We have value because we're a human being, a human nature, which we all shared from the moment of conception. Do you see then why abortion survivors are the greatest nightmare of the pro-abortion movement? Because if they grant the beauty of their life, then they've given up the very philosophical foundation and ground that they have to stand on in order to insinuate that no unborn human being has moral worth and that their mother's right to kill them is just they're practicing their reproductive health care and bodily autonomy. Abortion survivors blow the euphemistic bigotry of the pro-abortion movement to smithereens just by existing, just by standing there and saying, I'm the face of choice. Look at me. Very unfortunate that Fox refuses to air this during the Super Bowl. Gianna Jessen, the one of the at least maybe the first outspoken popular abortion survivor, has said for decades that if abortion is about women's rights, then where were mine? Exactly. Look into the faces of choice and say that they have no value. But look, this is a message of life, isn't it? This is a force of life advocating for humanity, for human value, for human equality compared to feminist news. Planned Parenthood, and the Women's March, all upping their ante, all increasing their dutiful service to their own selfish ideology to maintain abortion rights and their own sexual libertinism. Disgusting and sick. Great forces are on the move, but they're not both good forces. January 2020 is a microcosm, folks, of what this year will be like. It's just a little hint and a whisper of what is in store for this year. This is an election year. You thought they went crazy when Brett Kavanaugh got appointed, despite the fact that he never had any judicial history ruling on abortion cases. They just assumed he was super pro-life because he was appointed by Trump. Imagine what will happen if he gets reelected or gets another Supreme Court justice appointed to the highest court in the land. This is a little microcosm of the mania that is in store between the conflict of these two forces. So expect more life-affirming messages of love from the pro-life movement and a surge in the response of Americans, pro-lifers, and people of faith to the call of duty from the great forces of life on the move. Contrastively, expect more anger, hatred, and bigotry, crassness, and perhaps violence from the pro-abortion movement whose only duty is to themselves and their own selfish ideology that enables them to trod over the beaten, bloodied bodies of dead children in order to pursue their own career well-being and line their pockets with their career and their success that wasn't hindered by the existence of another child. Like children denied a toy that they feel entitled to, pro-aborts will continue losing their mind at the political threats poised to destroy their ability to pursue endless sexual liberty, even at the cost of battering and blooding the children that they created consensually. Great forces are on the move, folks, but they're not both good forces. One is good, one is evil. Both are calling their troops to duty. Will you respond <laughs> to the call of duty and fight for the force of life? I hope and pray that you will. And in the meantime, I'll see you on the battlefield. Go and give them heaven. Well, that's all we have time for for today. Thanks for tuning in today with Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Head on over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Give the show a review and a rating and help us reach more people through that. 
uh, strategy since people troll the podcast and leave nasty reviews. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to my website, sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com for training videos, my speaking schedule, and subscribe to my newsletter to get more content delivered to your email inbox. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> baby.